Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. You know, you're told it's going to be one of the best times of your life having a child. Never will you experience such happiness and shared joy, they say. The getting pregnancy process is pretty much supposed to happen without a hitch. During the pregnancy itself, the mother will feel at peace and have that glow about her, they say. The delivery, it'll be manageable. Those first few minutes with your baby in your arms, magical. And the new life being started together, a priceless blessing. For some, this is their lived reality, but that's not always the case for everyone. How about those pregnancy fears that can sneak in there? What's the childbirth really going to be like? Am I going to be a good parent? Are the changes to my body normal? What am I supposed to do with all these emotions? Or what if things are a bit more challenging? What if pregnancy isn't happening right away? And what if the doctor says to you and your partner, you know, you may need some special interventions? What if concern gets raised about the pregnancy and its viability? Or what if you're told your baby's not going to be born healthy? Or at its worst, what if I can't take my baby home? Our guest today, Tracy Gilmore Nimoy, brings both lived and clinical experience, including difficulty conceiving, infertility, high-risk pregnancy, traumatic delivery, infant pregnancy loss, and pregnancy after loss. Tracy is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified perinatal mental health professional. Tracy works with individuals, parents, and families throughout the reproductive and family-starting journeys. Tracy has become a fierce advocate of perinatal and reproductive mental health with the goal of supporting and empowering women, individuals, parents, and families. Tracy, it's so nice to have you here with us today. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to talk about these topics, which don't get a lot of attention and I'm super passionate about. So thank you so much. Fantastic. You know, as we start out today, I'd like to ask if you would kindly share with us your personal story of the challenges that you experienced that showed you that there's a need for perinatal mental health. Yeah, much like how you were describing this when you first came on, Graham, I, you know, imagined that I would be a mother one day. I wanted to be a mother from the time that I was a kid. And I imagine it in the way that people teach about fertility. If you want to have a baby, you have sex, you'll get pregnant. It'll be so special. Everything will go perfectly. You'll have the baby at the end. It'll be magical. Yes, it'll be hard, but it'll be worth it. And, you know, I got married. I was a therapist. I was working at a behavioral health hospital, doing private practice, just absolutely loving my work. And so I reached the point where I was like, you know what? My career is on track. Everything is in line, all of my ducks are in a row, and I'm ready to start a family. And my family journey was not how I was taught. It did not look that way. It took me almost a year to get pregnant, which if you're 35 or under, Mm. that means for a fertility treatment to a reproductive endocrinologist, that means, okay, something's not going the way that it should. We need to kind of reevaluate. So the more time that went on, I had this feeling like something was wrong with me because I was never taught that there's this year period. I was never taught that there are other options. And so around month 10, I get pregnant. The way that I find out I was pregnant was a little different. I had to have emergency kidney surgery and, you know, I'd been trying to get pregnant. I took five pregnancy tests leading up to the surgery because I was so concerned about all of the intervention and what that would mean if I was pregnant and test after test show that it was negative. So I go through with the surgery 
end up getting multiple infections post-surgery, land in the ER, and that's where they say, oops, you're pregnant. So the way that I found out was that like a bit of a whirlwind and not kind of like doing the yeah. home test and having right. that moment of joy with my <laughs> right. partner. And so from that second, I just had a very bad feeling like something was wrong with the baby. And mm -hmm. I, I was pretty vocal about that. I said, something is wrong. I, I don't know what, I just know something is wrong. But throughout my pregnancy, everything was fine. Test after test, everything was fine. So I continue on in the pregnancy with this nagging feeling, you know, advocating for more tests, being told that, you know, no, everything's fine, just continue on, you know, planning for my maternity leave, thinking, okay, I'll go out on leave, I'll spend time with my baby, and then when I come back, I'll grow my practice. And I was not working with perinatal mental health populations prior okay. to this, because I didn't even know it was a population. The way that I learned it was a population was when I became a member of that population. And so I think that's really significant to mention because most practitioners who specialize in this have had that similar experience. That's right. We're not taught about it in school. Yeah. And yeah. I, I feel shame saying that because it's like, how did I not know that this was even a need? And so, you know, I go through my pregnancy, everything's fine. I reach uh, the third trimester. So I reach 28 weeks and I go for a routine scan and that's where they find something on, on my baby's brain. So that leads then to a referral to a perinatologist or MFM, which is maternal fetal medicine. So especially it's a high risk pregnancy doctor. So I go and I'm like, okay, I knew it. Like, this is that bad feeling that I had. And they go, no, it's human error. So mm. I'm sitting, you know, in the doctor's office with my husband saying, run the test again. I don't believe you. I, I've had this bad feeling. And this is something that's really common where women have a bad feeling throughout their pregnancy and they're constantly dismissed. But you and were very so assertive with it though. And I, I was so assertive. My OB was really good. He would run extra tests for me. And yeah. there wasn't anything tangible up until that point, which is so hard because a lot of the more like serious abnormalities are not detectable until later in pregnancy. So it wasn't that he missed anything. There just yeah. wasn't anything to detect. To see that. Yeah. And so basically I was labeled as an anxious first time pregnant lady. And, you know, as a therapist, I was like, you know, but I don't want to pathologize this. It would be okay if I was anxious, but I really don't think like that's what this is. I just have this bad feeling. I'm not someone who has a history of like diagnosable anxiety. So for me, it was very out of character. And so I knew that and I knew myself, but it made me feel crazy. I was like, oh my gosh, like maybe I am just, you know, maybe it's the hormones, maybe it's the pregnancy. So what the doctor said was, you know, you don't really need an additional test, but wait four weeks and come back and then I'll do it sort of like as a favor. I'm like, okay, you know, you know, at that point, very pregnant, third trimester, 28 weeks. So I had a baby shower in that interim period. And I remember very distinctly telling my mom, like, cancel my shower. I do not want to have this shower. And everyone was like, I just knew. And everyone was like, come on, like, we spent so much money. Like you're being really selfish. And so I go through with the shower and even at the shower, everyone was like, are you excited? And I was like, no. And I wouldn't open gifts. I was like, I'm not opening anything. So, you know, I carry on and then I go to the four week appointment and everyone, you know, do it saying like, this is just, you know, for good measure. And then as I'm sitting in the appointment, I can just tell, I can just tell I'm reading their affect. This is pre COVID. So no one's yeah. wearing masks. Right. And I can just tell like, they're not talking to me, their face says it all. And so they leave us in that room for quite a while. And then they come back and I remember the exact words. It was like, we see it on the brain and it's extensive. Mm -hmm. And so basically that just led to a scrambling of, okay, 
what do we do? And it led to so many meetings with specialists and having an MRI and all of these diagnostics, which essentially said like, this is so rare. I was told there's a 0.0001% chance of this happening. And it was so rare that I had to travel outside of San Diego where I live, which is not a rural area no. <laughs> to find specialists who even knew, you know, how to give me like a diagnosis and prognosis. And, and everyone said it was not a viable pregnancy. And so thereafter I was induced where I had to go through labor and delivery to deliver my daughter. And just along the way, I fell through the cracks. You know, no one explained to me like what that process would be like. No one explained to me what my postpartum recovery would look like. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, if I'm a therapist who knows the healthcare system so well, and I'm married to a healthcare consultant. So we, we know healthcare from like every angle. If no one knows what to do with us and we are outliers and we know the system, right. what's happening to everyone who's having like the quote unquote normal experiences. And so I just knew like, okay, when I go back to work, I have to specialize in this because I want to help people like me. I want to provide the support that I didn't have early on. So in my mind, I was like, okay, the, the delivery will be traumatic because I'm going to be, you know, not having my baby at the end. I'm going to be holding my dead baby at the end. I didn't anticipate the medical trauma that I would experience. And so I go through the labor and delivery. Um, induction in and of itself is very physically and emotionally traumatic. It's very drawn out. It's very painful. There's a lot of interventions. It's invasive. It's, it's all vaginal intervention. So it's yeah. very, you're very vulnerable physically and emotionally. And so that lasted 48 hours, which was horrific. This is um, March of 2020, the week before the stay-at-home order, which is like the one thing I'm so grateful for, because had it been the week after, I would not have been able to have anyone in the room with me. So I was like, oh my gosh, the one thing that I'm like, I'm so grateful for, I'm lucky, is that. And, you know, I go through the delivery and, you know, they allow you to spend time with your baby, which is really beautiful and lovely. And so I was like, okay, like we'll have this time. We had sort of prepped of like, you know, we'll speak with her, we'll sing to her. And we didn't get a lot of that time because immediately after I had a massive postpartum hemorrhage and it was very traumatic for my husband because we're like in the room That's holding scary. our baby. Yeah. And he, and I had an epidural, so I was numb. So I didn't feel anything. Didn't feel and I, it. I, and the adrenaline, just like the shock of everything, of not only childbirth, but just like the grief. So my husband like looks down, he's like, oh my God, you're bleeding a lot. And my husband, I love him so much. He is a, a bit of an alarmist. So I was like, oh no, like he's just never seen childbirth. There's just stuff after right. childbirth. And he goes, no, you're bleeding a lot. And he runs out of the room panicked. And I was like, okay. So then they come back in, that they take the baby from me and everyone is panicked. They're paging. And I was like, Oh crap. Like this is really this is real. Yeah, this is real. So the doctor comes running in, he like scrubs in on the side. And by that point they move my legs and I see just blood pouring from my body. So I was like, Oh shit, essentially. Yeah. So they, it was like, I felt like I was in an episode of Grey's Anatomy. They pull the plugs off the wall. They're like, we have to rush you into surgery. And my husband's running after them. Is she going to die? You know, kissing me like, I love you. And so everything that you see in the movie, I get rushed into the first of two emergency surgeries where they did like a partial DNC to, to yeah. see if there was like any retained yeah. product. And then they find out that I had this like rare blood disorder that I don't have in everyday life. I had mm -hmm. because of like the trauma of the delivery and it's more common, it. like with stillbirth and induction. And I was just losing blood. And so I had 
16 blood transfusions on the table. Yeah. This is really important piece because you're talking about how all of these things have gone into ultimately shaping what you're doing professionally. So I know you had the 16, 48 hour labor, the delivery piece, then the, then the hemorrhage and then 16 pints of blood. You were in ICU You were in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Yep. Yeah. So, and the reason that I usually don't give as much detail, but I know as a provider, you're probably really interested in the trauma components of that, which is why I'm speaking to that. So, yeah, I mean, I had cords, I remember in like both side of my groins and then my elbow area, I don't know what the proper term is for that. And then when they realized, okay, like we can't stop the bleed, it's because you have this disorder. I was transferred to another hospital. Luckily it was on the Metro campus. They took me like through this underground tunnel and that's where I had an embolization, which was done like through the radiology department. And I was awake for everything. That's the oh other really goodness. big thing. They said that if they decided to forgo anesthesia, because if they did, they would have had to put me in a medically induced coma and they were scared that I wouldn't wake wouldn't up. Come back. Yeah. yeah. And I remember very clearly after my doctor, who I have a pretty good rapport with, he was like, well, it was the least traumatic option for you. I was like the least physically traumatic yes, exactly. option. Yeah. And then I was in the ICU and then on the acute floor and, you know, a week in the hospital. And then I was discharged. And I was, I remember I was scared to sleep. Like I had this idea in my head because I definitely dissociated like in the procedure. I was not stressed. I was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to die. And like, that sucks for everybody else. And that's what I asked them repeatedly. Am I going to die? And am I going to be infertile? Were the two questions that I asked them. And they were panicked. They're like, we don't know. We're doing everything we can for you. I was like, oh, I feel bad for them. Like they're panicked. They didn't have don't any answers, Yeah, they didn't have and they answers. they were afraid like, too. Yeah, they were afraid too. Like, just don't yeah. freak out. And so I just laid there quietly. But after when I was in the ICU, I had the moment of like, oh my gosh, this is what happened. And I was scared to sleep. I had it in my mind that if I closed my eyes, something would happen and I had to stay alert. And so I wouldn't sleep. And that was really, really big. And sleep after was really, really hard to me. I was scared to sleep. It didn't feel safe to be asleep. I'd imagine that could have been hard. Yeah. But, you know, you're talking about uh, the physical trauma, and I would imagine a lot of yeah. you were part of you was numb in, in, in some ways, but the psychological yeah. piece, being cognizant of it all and aware of it all. Yeah. And having to sit with those things afterwards. I know that also uh, kind of leaves you coming back and having a, a time with your husband and also with your baby just to kind of be together finally. Yeah. Uh, a little bit longer. Yeah, we were and, robbed of that. Yeah. 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 You know, I appreciate your vulnerability. I don't believe that these things are easy to talk about whatsoever, yeah. but I, I think they're important, you know, for us, yeah. when we go through these things in our lives, we, we develop, you know, I think some emotional muscle as we do. And I think we, what I, what I appreciate as practitioners is that oftentimes we find ourselves going to certain fields yeah, out of our own experiences. I, I, I lightheartedly say, sometimes people say, Hey Graham, you know, you went into psychology because you want to figure <laughs> yourself out. And I always say, absolutely, that's when I went into psychology because I want to figure yeah. myself out, you know, and yeah. specific areas of interest and, and, and expertise that comes out of that. And what yeah. you're saying is that these experiences have really shaped what your focus now is as a practitioner. Talk a little bit about that. And then I want to talk about yeah. a couple of areas that you work in. Yeah. I mean, it, it literally changed everything about who I am in my life that like for me, there's this very clear line of who I was and who I am, which sounds silly because I'm me, (laughs) you know, I am the same person, but in so many ways and and in the biggest ways, I am so different. So basically I took several months off of work because I was like, I can't be a therapist right now. And I know what it takes to be a therapist and it takes being in a really good place and taking really good care of yourself. And if you had said to me before this, like there's going to be a period in your life where you're going to take nine months off of work 
work. I would have laughed. I used to joke when I was pregnant, I'm not even going to take maternity leave. I'll take a week or two. That's just my personality. I love what I do and I love to work. And I knew that. And so in that time though, I I got the certification, the perinatal mental health certification. Oh. I did trainings. I read. I really immersed myself in this new population, this new sort of like specialty that I didn't know you. was a thing. I went back to work slowly, and you know, I still do my own therapy. I'm in individual yeah. therapy. I'm in couples therapy. So I was taking really good care of myself. But you know, the lived experience. Yeah. There's nothing like it. Like people always say to me, like, "Well, what's the best training?" I that you've taken. I'm like my life, <laughs> my experience. Exactly. Yeah. Right. My experience. There's nothing like it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you know, a lot of the skills in therapy are adaptable. It's just about like learning the nuances for the population. And, and also like, if we're talking grief therapy, it's a very different type of therapy. The goal of therapy typically is a reduction of symptoms is to feel better or to feel less, you know, anxious or whatever it is that we're wanting to work on with grief therapy. It's kind of the opposite. I actually want you to lean into grief because we're taught that grief is staged, which is false. There are no stages of grief. Grief is not linear. And we have these antiquated views of grief. And so people hear about grief or read about grief and they think, well, I can only be sad for X amount of time, or like, I have to go back to work. Or, you know, if I talk about my person who has died, then I'm stuck in my grief. And that's not true. And, you know, people will come to me in therapy. And the first question I get was, well, how long can I expect to grieve for? Right. And I always say, for life. And I say, you know, I'll give you a little bit of hope is, you know, your relationship to your grief will change. It won't always feel this way. It won't always feel so raw. Grief in this way is not sustainable. If that were true, people would just give up every time someone died. They would never go to the market. They would never go to work. And it's lifelong. Like you will never arrive at a point in time where you're like, totally cool. My child died. Totally fine with that. And so it's really like leaning into it and helping them to figure out how do they continue to have a a relationship with their person who has died. You know, I, I I like that piece. I like to actually go into that a little bit more to do that in just a moment, but I want to highlight one thing and then shift into another piece. You know, you're talking about how, when we go through these experiences in our lives, we we are not the same. We change, we, we, we expand. You know, this used to be me here. And and now I've gone through these experiences. I'm not the same person. And I mm-hmm. had this added experience. There's, there's a paradigm shift yeah. in things. There's a vulnerability that gets embraced. Mm-hmm. And there ideally is a positive growth that comes from that, mm-hmm. that allows us to be in the world in even a more robust, a more, more emotionally muscled, maybe more resilient way. Yeah. And I think therein lies some hope, both as, you know, practitioners mm-hmm. that, that work with this and also those that go through different traumas in our lives. And yeah. they ideally expand us in a way we, where we are better in the world, more appreciative of yeah. things, uh, more present, more empathic, all those things that, that, that get to grow from this. But I want to, I want to take you back to something first. I'd like to name three, what I'll call transitions mm-hmm. experienced in one's life within the context of your clinical focus, their pregnancy, yeah. mm-hmm. infertility, and postpartum. And what I'd like to ask is if you would share some of your common experiences you hear from yeah. folks going through each of these transitions and how yeah. are you working with them in, in these ways, just kind of briefly. So let's start with pregnancy. What are some of the fears, concerns, challenges you hear that just are, are a good place to have in yeah. therapy to talk about? What are you hearing? Yeah. So I'm hearing, I'm um, kind of like how you were speaking about, like in the beginning of like this, like rose tinted lens that we tend to look through this expectation that you should feel happy or excited. That's a very common one with pregnancy. Yeah. So it's like what I call like the shoulds or like shooting all over yourself, you know, well, you know, 
people post on social media and everyone says, how excited are you? And like, really, you know, especially in the first trimester, most people feel very sick in pregnancy. And then they feel guilty if their experience doesn't align with how they think it should look, which is that you should be happy and excited and feel good. And you're glowing and like, you look so beautiful. The relationship to the body, body image and self-esteem is really big. Things that are said, like your body knows what to do. If a woman has a fear, if someone has a fear that something's wrong and they hear things like, well, it's natural, your body knows what to do. And then something goes wrong. There's a lot of like self-blame of like, well, like, why didn't my body know what to do? Did I do something? Did I cause something? Yeah. And the thing to remember about pregnancy, and this is true of every phase, pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum is people are not learning about those phases of life until they've either lived it in the moment or they're beyond it. So a lot of this education is happening like simultaneously or after. Yeah. Yeah, Like someone is saying, okay, like bleeding postpartum is like an example. I know I'm jumping ahead. They'll be like, well, I'm bleeding. And it's like, yeah, you're going to bleed for six weeks. It's like, why didn't you tell me that? Right. Right. It's kind of like backfilling. Yeah. Or like, I remember like going home, no one explained any postpartum recovery aside from bleeding, which I think was because I hemorrhaged. So I like woke up one night, just drenched in sweat, sweating through the night of like, oh my God, like I have a fever, something's wrong. I didn't know that that was normal hormonal shifts. So the educational piece is, is just so missing. So that's like big with pregnancy. So part of what you're doing around that piece is just that kind of that, that psychoeducational piece and that physical and emotional piece. And trying to right size some of these things so that you're both normalizing yeah. and validating it. Take us, take us into a little bit more challenging area of yeah. where there's infertility or where there is a pregnancy yeah. loss. Then we'll come to postpartum after that. But infertility yeah. and pregnancy loss, some of the yeah. struggles, fears, overwhelm. Yeah. Yes. And I would say too, even outside of infertility, would I would add another category, which would just be like the trying to conceive period, because infertility is a, a medical diagnosis which means that if you're under 35, you have to have tried without assistance for one year to get that. If it's 35 or older, it's six months. And so you can be trying for a long time and that can be really hard. Like for me, I was 10 months, I was trying and tracking ovulation and feeling like what's wrong with my body? Why can't I do this? You know, I was 28. I'm supposed to be so fertile. And so, you know, that period is, is so hard. And it's like, at the same time, we live in this world where everything is instant. And so you turn on the TV and someone's pregnant, you open your social media and five friends have just announced. And so when you have this parallel of like someone's life that you want to live and it's playing out and yours feels really stalled, it is so depressing and it leads to difficulty in being around these people. It's triggering, right? And so speak speak in that, in that, in that light right there, speak to the isolation. Yeah, because of I mean, that piece. That's real, isn't it? Yeah. The isolation is so real and the shame because no one talks about it. And the statistics are high. Pregnancy loss, like is one in four pregnancies. Yeah. That's that's pretty high. That yeah, means 25%. we all know someone. Infertility is one in eight couples. That's also high. If you think like back to like going to like a wedding where there's so many couples, that yeah. means a good portion of them statistically speaking, are falling within that infertility category. That's right. And what happens is it's kind of like, you don't know this is a thing until it's a thing. And the second you start sharing it, then so many people come forward and share, yeah, I had a miscarriage or yes, like I know someone or I'm going through IVF. It's like no one talks about it. And so everyone just suffers in silence. Yeah. Talk about that same piece then where they're going through those kinds of losses that you're helping us appreciate. 
But then yeah. there's another transition that folks can experience in life, and that's postpartum. That's you know what what happens afterwards, yeah. and yeah, and we're either learning things kind of in the moment in real time, right. or we're kind of backfilling with a kind of a retrospective understanding. Talk about yeah. what some of the things are that you work with with couples that are in, in kind of that postpartum phase. Yeah. So the one of the biggest things with postpartum is there is this immediate shift. You know, throughout pregnancy, the woman is doted on. She is given compliment after compliment. Right. Doors are held open. <laughs> Second, you have a baby with a stroller. It's like hands are full. Like n- nobody cares. And it's really an immediate shift. Like you're going to the doctor, you're the patient, you're cared for. And the second that the baby, like literally in the delivery room, it's like you give birth, which is a huge thing emotionally and, and physiologically. And then it's like, what's going on with the baby? Is the baby okay? What's the baby's weight? What's the baby's temperature? And the mom's just like sitting here. Like, All that attention shifted. Yes. And no one's checking in with the mom and everyone's assuming she's happy and that it's magical. Like we talked about. And a lot of the times the mom is like, who is this alien? Like, what do I do? And then throw in sleep deprivation, hormonal shifts. I mean, being sent home and not knowing, you know, when do I feed? What's going on? My baby can't, can't latch, you know, all of these other things that happen in the postpartum period. And that's why we see you know, PMADs, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. We see postpartum depression. We see postpartum anxiety because there's no support. The support drops off. Typically you get one postpartum visit at six or eight weeks, depending upon the type That's of delivery. That's a long period of time though. Yes. Especially if like the baby blues, if there's like this provisional period of like, if these symptoms persist beyond two weeks, then it's no longer baby blues. So there's this gap of four to six weeks where someone's suffering struggling and they feel like this is just normal because they had a baby because no one says it's not normal or it might be normal and that doesn't mean you need to suffer we see these things these are really common that doesn't mean there isn't support we'll be right back after word from our sponsor most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig-time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com bht. And then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com jobs. That's app hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. Yes. What's hard about that though, too, when you're going through it is you're, you're going through these feelings and I'm not supposed to be feeling this way because it's supposed to be a pretty cool experience, right? I'm supposed to be yes. all, you know, rainbows and unicorns here. Yeah. And yet I'm feeling these very conflicted feelings or the struggle, feel, you know, physically, maybe even the point where thoughts get scary and that can happen. Yeah. And talk about the isolation you mentioned earlier on. It's hard to talk about these things because you're ashamed almost to bring these up because people are going to think, well, what kind of mom are you? You know, what kind that, of, right. What kind of yeah. parent are you? Kind of and 
Yeah. And not only that, but then the pandemic, now we're all purposefully or sometimes unavoidably isolated. And also the support that comes, it's always in relation to the baby. It's send me a picture of the baby. How's the baby? What's the baby's name? What's going on with the baby? Is the baby sleeping? Is the baby eating? It's like, I want to know about the parents. Are you sleeping? What do you need? Do you want me to drop off dinner? Do you want me to hold your baby so you can sleep for 30 minutes? Cause you didn't sleep at all last night. Yeah. Why do you think shifting just a wee bit here? Why do you think we haven't done a better job of speaking thoroughly enough and comprehensively enough about some of these things. Yeah. You know, I think about that a lot. Like, why is it this way? Because this is not new that it's hard. It's just new that we're starting to talk about it. We've been having babies for however as long as we've had dirt. Yeah. I think it just goes back to how we view mental health and like this expectation of if you suffer, then that means you're weak or less than, and these things are going to be further from the truth. Actually, if you get help, if you're vulnerable, like to me, that shows more strength than, you know, not doing those things, but it's just a societal thing. It's how we talk about these things. Like we're not taught about like getting therapy. We're taught you go to therapy when something's wrong. And I always tell people it's actually better to go to therapy when things are going okay. So when things in your life blow up, you have support in place. You don't have to wait for things. And people often wait until it's so bad. And then they reach this point where they're suicidal or like they can't leave the house or, you know, it's just causing so many impairments. And that's just like always so sad for me. Like they reach this point where there's, it's like, there's no hope. And knowing they didn't have to. Yeah. And knowing that they didn't have to, there could have been support earlier on. Yeah. Good news around that. We can help them kind of back that up and put those supports and resources in place. But there's a lot of trauma that takes place between that time where those things, those resources get built and what they had to go through. So I like the idea of kind of preemptively kind of coming in with a plan and normalizing some things and all the things you're saying aren't happening, can happen. We're talking a lot about the woman's experience and that's significant and important. Yeah. But what about the guys out there? What are the men sharing with you and part of their experience? Yeah. yeah. So this is so important. And so like the men and the non-pregnant partners, typically what I see is that they feel like they need to be strong. Their experiences or their feelings aren't valid because it wasn't their body. And this is highlighted when there's like infertility or loss because there's more medical intervention and there's more burden placed on the person whose body it is. And so what that leads to is this separation within the couple unit where one person feels like, well, why aren't they experiencing grief or, or, you know, whatever it is, if it's not like related to loss, but grief isn't only exclusive to loss. It can be like these shadow losses that we're talking about, like loss of like identity or loss of like how I thought this experience would look and it doesn't. So I'm speaking kind of generally when I say loss. Yeah. And then one person feels like, well, okay, you don't care enough or like, you're not as invested. It's all on me. And the other person feels like, well, I don't want to complain because they have it worse and I need to support them. And so typically it looks like the woman or the person who is pregnant being like the IP, like the identified patient of like, okay, like all the focus is on them. And then they process more vocally um, and tend to work through it faster. And then the other person is like, okay, actually I'm really depressed and anxious and they kind of fall apart. But that's like kind of what happens like in a couple, one person picks up the slack over functions. And then the second that that person becomes more stable, they feel like they can fall apart a little bit. That's a really great description. And and it kind of brings in that idea too. Even the couple begins to become isolated from each other. They become to kind of separate and parallel lives and ideally being able to come back and start talking though. Yeah, definitely. And there's so much research too around that if one person has, you know, postpartum depression or anxiety, then the other partner is more likely to have it. 
And just be, you don't have to be pregnant to have plus, you know, a PMAD to have a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. You just have to be a parent. And so it's really, really significant. You mentioned this idea of grieving before, and we're not a society that, that that's built to grieve very well. Other yeah. cultures have rituals and and that, that really help us kind of lean into. And one of the things we tend to do is we kind of lean out of or away from that, you know, support grief. You're, you're in your work having to do some grief work with folks that have gone through some of these losses, having to accept yeah. things and come to terms with things that may be permanent mm-hmm. for some. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about those folks that are on the other side, those that want to be supportive. It could be family members, friendships, yeah. you know, your, your group, whatever it may be that want to be supportive and show up, but it's really yeah. hard. There are so things hard. like, you know, being well-intended. There's things like toxic positivity. There's yeah. the wrong things that could be said. Talk a little bit about ways that those that want to be supportive can in fact be supportive in the best possible sure. way during a time like this. Yeah. And this is so important because we hear so much of what not to do. And we also have to focus on what to do because when yes. we only harp on, okay, that was wrong. That was bad. People just say, well, then I'm not going to say anything. Right. You know? I'm, I'm just going to pull away. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. make it worse. Yeah. And, you know, I would say 99% of people do not have malintent. That doesn't mean that what they're doing is okay. And doesn't mean that it's not causing harm. And I want to speak to that. I think in order to do that, I need to speak a little bit more about pregnancy loss, which I don't think I've touched about, touched upon as much. And so what's important to remember going back to like the trauma and post-traumatic growth and resiliency to remember is that this is a trauma and it's not only an emotional trauma, but it's an attachment trauma and it's a physical trauma. And so the physical trauma is what happens in the body and the you know subsequent medical intervention and appointments that follow. That's the physical trauma and going through postpartum without your baby and the changes. And then the emotional trauma is, you know, obviously like the loss and the grief and the attachment trauma is attaching to this baby from the second you find out you're pregnant and loving this baby and viewing this baby as your child and then not being able to parent that baby in the way that you want. And post-traumatic growth is a beautiful thing. Like you said, so many people go through these horrible things and then they make these changes where they're, you know, kind of like what I'm doing, you know, helping out and, you know, giving back. And I guarantee you, if you ask every single person, you know, what's your choice here? If you had to choose, they will say, I'd rather go back to the old me and not help people and have this not happen. And so it's really an and situation, not a, but I am so grateful to be able to help people. And I wish that I didn't have this experience. I wish I didn't even know about this, right? The balance and to remember that resilience and post-traumatic growth, those are trauma responses. Yes, We are are resilient because we have to be. We are resilient because we have no other option. And acceptance of these things, which we arrive at because there is no choice, doesn't mean that we are okay with it. Acceptance doesn't mean tolerance. It means acknowledgement. It means, okay, this is my situation. This is a bad situation. This is as bad as I think it is. And this is where I'm at. What do I do with this? So now that I've explained that a little bit, I can go into kind of like how to support. I'd love to hear it. So basically it's like basic therapy skills, honestly. It's validating and normal. Well, let's empower those that want to be supportive. Yeah, give them some of the basic things that are just priceless and helpful. So it's basically not jumping to solutions, just hearing and reflecting back and listening of like, this is so awful. I'm so sad that this happened. Sharing in the emotion. I'm so sad that this happened joining so many people have cried with me when I talk and that is like the most beautiful thing that someone can do because I'm like oh this impacts you you love me and you love my baby 
And really the, the best gift we can give to a grieving person is just to be a witness because we can't fix it for them. You cannot fix it. There's nothing that you could do or say that will fix it for them because the only thing that would be able to fix it would be for this to not have happened. And it's the one thing you can't give them. When I, when I hear you say it that way, it's almost like you're saying, you know, it's, 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 it's not a scolding, like, you know, you don't, don't no. do this. What you're saying is, as I hear it, you're alleviating the pressure yeah. from someone trying to be supportive of the expectation yeah. that they need to cure the person of their yes. grief. And you're 100%. saying you don't just lean into it with them, just yeah, acknowledge just it, it, sit, hold, cry, yes. Yes. echo back some feelings that, that you're hearing and yeah. just hold that space with them. Yes, exactly. Um, asking if they want to talk about it, you know, asking, like, I always ask people, how do you want me to, if it, we're talking about pregnancy loss, this is true for all grief. You know, do you want to talk about your baby? How do you want me to refer to your baby? Did you have a name using the name, you know, lost parents get robbed of so much. And one of the things they get robbed of is using the name and hearing the name. And so when someone says like, I'm thinking like my daughter's name is Addison. When someone's saying, I'm thinking of Addison, I'm like, oh, I love to hear her name, you know? Yeah. And so using the name, using the language that feels right for them, sitting with them, you know, knowing that they might want to not talk. So not expecting a response. So many times I hear, well, I reached out and they didn't respond. And it's like, they don't owe you anything. You reach out to them. <laughs> because you love them you don't reach out to get something back and if you are then you know those aren't the best of intentions and recognizing that sometimes they're going to ignore you and so saying things like i'm thinking of you no pressure to respond or i'm dropping off food tonight you know i won't come inside what can i get you what sounds yummy what sounds you know nourishing to you you know so focusing on tasks and things like that i'm like for pregnancy loss there are a lot of things to be done and this is true for all grief too there's often burials, there's funerals. We had a nursery that was set up because I was over eight months pregnant. We were ready for our baby to come home and she didn't. So I had friends that stayed in my house till two in the morning, stripping my nursery, painting, putting everything in storage, like doing, asking like, what can I do? You know, and checking in, not going in and removing things because some people will not want anything touched. Like if you have like a partner who has died and they drink from the coffee cup and that's the last thing you, you want to make sure you ask before you wash things and move things. For me, I wanted everything gone. I was like, I don't want to see it. I don't yeah. want to deal with it. So checking in and, and then figuring out how you can support. What, what I like about that is you're, you're encouraging people to be bold in how they show up in those times, asking permission, asking for clarification yeah. and not shying away. And like you said earlier in our time, kind of leaning in those moments. So I think that grief yeah. is a really, really helpful piece. You know, I am, um, I know we're kind of winding down a couple of things I want to get to. One is if you were to kind of leave a word for our listeners yeah. today, those who might be struggling with infertility or mm-hmm. infant loss, some of these things we're discussing, what do you want them to walk away with from our time today? Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I would want people to walk away with is that, you know, life is so hard and unfair And we all experience hard things in life, every single one of us. And that is not you being a lot. That is those things being a lot. A lot of times when we experience these hard things, we think, well, I'm a lot, I'm too much. And that's not true. It is these experiences. And it is as hard as you think. You are not catastrophizing. You are not being dramatic. And this period won't last in this way, in the same way forever. And there is support. And there are people who will hear you and be able to help you move through it, not on, 
moves through it. And so it's really a difference between pain and suffering. We can't erase pain. We can aid suffering. And that's really what it comes down to. That's a great word. Talking about ways to work through these things. Give us some resources here, Tracy, if you would, about perinatal and reproductive mental health and sites where people can go. And also, how can folks learn more about your TGN therapy? Yeah. So great resources, Postpartum Support International for, you know, all things perinatal. And they have a provider directory on there too. So you can search kind of like by state and, you know, insurance and things like that. And they also run groups. Honestly, there are a lot of Instagram accounts, which are really good that might not necessarily be like uh, professional resources, but there's this community of of just people. And, you know, everyone always jokes. It's like the worst community with the best people. Like you don't want to be in the community but like once you're in like you're in and it's so warm and so lots of accounts and I have all of this listed on my website which is a great way to to learn more about me but you know Resolve is a great organization for infertility Return to Zero Hope is a great one for loss and infertility so there there are a lot of people doing really good work out there and lots of opportunities for community engagement too very good we're going to put your website up on our site but if you would uh, just let our listeners know it uh, in the show today give us your website yeah yeah, so it's just my initials, tgntherapy.com. A writer who couldn't think of a more creative name. So. <laughs> hey, I like simple. Basic. Keep it simple, stupid. I like that. That yeah. works very, very well. Yeah. Well, hey, Tracy, I so appreciate you being on the show. I, I mostly really appreciate your willingness to yeah. be so vulnerable with us and transparent uh, yeah. of your experience and the work you've done. I'm just curious, you know, from your life experiences, let me ask, what, what, is, what is your superpower in life now mm. coming out of these things? Oh, I've never been asked that. Such a good question. I think my superpower now is like the realism, like that naivete is gone. I think my superpower now is the realism to really see and hear people in a way that is so magical and so powerful. And like, it gives me chills when I talk about it because it's like people in therapy will say like, you're the first person to ever say that or like these very basic things that will just like bring people to tears. And so it's just being able to see and hear people. I think that's my superpower. I've read just about everything you've written and, and listeners, if you want to go read some really, really interesting articles, Tracy is a phenomenal writer. Uh, she captures things. She's gritty. She doesn't pull any punches. She swears every now and then, which I love because yep. it just kind of <laughs> highlights some things here that are just really meaningful. And she captures experiences like she's doing today so well on the show, but her writings are, are phenomenal. And, 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 and as, as you're talking about just, this resilience you have and the ability to come into the world in just such an honest and present way that comes across in your writings. And so that's a cool superpower to be able to be that present and to have that understanding and the ability to bring that presence to others going through something that for the first time is their experience that ideally they get to come out with maybe a superpower or some strength themselves, that postpartum growth, that the resilience we talk about, therein lies the hope that we're not going to be solely defined by the challenges we go through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a life sentence. It's a part of you. It's not the only part of you. It's not the defining part. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, hey, Tracy, it's been great to be with you today. Thanks so much for being yeah. on our show. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. It was fun. Hey, I want to thank you, our listeners as well, for joining Tracy and me today. It's always great having you with us. I want to remind you that this episode, its resources, and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT and explore our archives of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show. and look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. 
We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.